Amen. Welcome this morning. How are you doing? Woohoo! Yeah? Woohoo! Woo woo! Any other noises out there? No? Just me. What'd you say? Yahoo! Remember that? Yahoo! Who remembers that? Some of us? Okay. There's like five hands in the air. That's terrible. Uh, Well, welcome. My name is Melody, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad you are joining us this morning. Um, I uh, tried to channel my inner Rana and create purple hair for myself. Can you see it? It's been really funny watching some of you um, look at me this morning. You're like looking all around my face, and I'm like, yeah, this is an accident. It's fine. It washes off. So, kids, let this lesson be learned. Read directions because, you know, if not, you'll end up with purple streaks. Uh, It's fine. I'm I'm a cool mom, right? (laughs) Trying to be hip, trying to stay up with the trends. Um, Well, welcome. Uh, This morning, we are so glad that you're here, however you came. It's weird weather. It's humid. It's rainy. It's whatever it is, but you are here, and we are so thankful for that. We had so many things kick off this week. We just want to share some of that with you. This week, we kicked off the Coffee Connect on Wednesday, and we have a picture to show you there of the creamers that were out, and we do have a picture. Five, four, three, two... No. It's fine. It's not working. Okay, maybe it'll show up, maybe it won't. We'll find out. But um, thank you if you donated creamer to the cause. Um, Coffee Connect, if you do not know, is on Wednesdays. We go out to the courtyard here and the, um, oh, you know what she's saying? Did you send it? I didn't. That's why you don't have the picture. It's sitting in my back pocket. Honey, can you send the text for me? It's, it's literally like the pic, I don't know, try. See if we can find it. My bad. A lot of things are my bad this morning. The purple hair, the picture, yeah. Anyway, thank you. Love you, too. Um, so if you haven't picked up on it, at New Song, we are not concerned with image or perfection. Okay, right? You are who you are, and we'll take you. Because uh, we're like that, too. Um, so... The Coffee Connect is on Wednesdays. We serve coffee to the high school, or, and Gatorade, by the way, um, to high school students across the street. And it is just an effort to say, hey, we are New Song Church right here, and this is a safe place for you. This is a place where you have lots of nice adults standing around, and we're just here. What those connections lead to is whatever God has planned, but we are faithful to what we think God has put in front of us. So thank you for your prayers for that. We prayed for that last week. Thank you for donating. So we will always take creamer. So just, I'm going to put that out there right now. Whenever you're at the store, just get an extra um, thing of creamer. We established this last, last year, no Irish cream, no Irish cream. But any other creamer, anything that's on sale, uh, you can bring it on a Sunday or you can bring it to the office during the week. We will take it and it will make a lot of high school students very happy. Another thing we did, uh, so this Friday we were actually at APU um, during their church fair. That's uh, me, Edwin, Grant, and Stephen. And we were at uh, APU. It was hot. It was hot. But man, it was so good. Uh, We were just there. It was a big church fair kind of uh, to just put out there to the new students and, hey, listen, we have a place, again, a safe place where we will love you. We want to walk with you. We are part of, you know, we want to be part of your journey if you want to be a part of ours. The week before, we were at LPU, and we have a picture of that, and that's Ben, Stephen, and I. That's right. And we, uh, we were giving out coffee, and we were giving out cup of noodles, and um, it was just a great time. And you know what's just so um, interesting about the fact that we did this? There's, there were so many churches. There were so many churches at both of these events. Some of them had, like, spin the wheel things. Some of them had, they actually had, like, cold brew on tap. Uh, some of them had, I don't know. I, honestly, I didn't really walk around because I was busy. But um, they had all sorts of different things. And I told students at both places, I said, you know what? There's a lot of churches here. 
trying to get your attention and trying to say, hey, come here, come here. And I'm, I'm going to say, if you want to come here, cool. But what we care about is you as a person. And we want to be in relationship with you. And if that just means we pray for you, if that just means you come and use our garden, if that just means whatever it means, just, well, that's what God wants. Okay? So it was, it, and it very much, uh, I was very much able to express what our mission statement is, is we want to follow Jesus, love people, and do good. And, you know, whether you come to our church or not, we will pray for you. I met so many freshmen who are just kind of struggling, who are missing home. Um, and so would you pray for that as, you know, students are starting school and doing all the things they do and, um, and, just keep, just keep LPU and APU and college students here in our midst, high school students here in our midst. Just keep students in your prayers. Yes? Amen? There's the creamer picture. Amen. Thank you, darling. Um, so that was right at the beginning before things took off. Dylan was in the very back of that picture. That was you, dude. That's right. He was first in line. Um, so anyway, there's about 75 or so students, but word gets around quick. And so before you know it, it's going to be 300, so buy that creamer. Um, anyhow, uh, another thing that is happening for the next three weeks only. So if you haven't come, jump on in this week. We are hosting small groups here at church on Wednesday nights, and that's 6.30, and we end at 8. So this is a place where we come, and we talk about the sermon, and we just share, you know, our thoughts or whatnot, but it's a great way also to plug in fast. You'll go, you'll get to know a lot of people around the circle really fast, and it's a great way to connect. And actually, that last, um, that last Wednesday, September 27th, Everyone is invited to that one because we would like to turn it into a party. Yeah? We'd like to turn it into a potluck where people bring all their delicious dishes. We're going to join hands with the youth group that goes on that night. But we would love for you to bring whatever your specialty is and share with us in that night. And let's all eat good food, yeah? yeah. All right. So you are invited to that. And women, 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 if you are in the room, if you are junior high and up, uh, the women's uh, activities are kicking off as of next Sunday. So we are going to have a, just a real casual gathering at the Glendora Public Market in Glendora. And if you don't want to come because, oh, the food is too expensive, oh, I don't really like anything to drink there, well, guess what? I'm going to have something for you. Okay, so I'll have a little treat for you. We're going to do a little activity um, there, and it's just going to be a great time to come and, again, connect, jump in. And if you come to that event, you will have fresh off the press the calendar for the fall events. Okay, the calendar for the fall events, and you want to mark those in your calendar. That includes a little uh, women's swap that will include a favorite things night. That will include all sorts of things. So please mark that in your calendar if you're able to come for even just half an hour. Just make the effort, come, and you will leave with a calendar in your hand. If you can't come, you'll still get a calendar, but you know, you get a gold star if you come to the Glendora Marketplace. All right? All right, I think that is it. Um, we are going to go ahead and transition to the next part of our gathering, which today we have Fuzz Rana bringing the message for us. And um, I just appreciate you so much, Fuzz. Fuzz, uh, for me, is such like a pillar of wisdom, and um, you're like, Melody, stop talking because my sermon is... You know, anyway, so he is just such a pillar of wisdom and um, knowledge, and I appreciate that every time I call Fuzz with a question, he picks up the phone, and, uh, and then he emails me like 14,000 resources on the question that I asked, and I'm like, okay, just give me one. Give me the best one. Anyway, so I'm going to pray. Will you join me as we um, begin this part of our service today? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you just for all the things that are happening around New Song outside of these walls, Lord. Thank you for the pantry and the garden that happened yesterday, Lord. Thank you for all the hands that worked in the garden, all the hands that worked in the pantry, Lord. 
Thank you that we are able to be a pillar for our community, Lord, that we are able to just um, stand out and say, hey, we're here for you with the Coffee Connect for the kids. Um, Lord, would you just have your hand in everything we do, Lord? Lord, we trust that um, the programs, the the meetings, the gatherings, Lord, that you, um, you are in all of it, Lord. Lord, I pray today as we are ready to hear Fuzz speak this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be open, that we would be able to hear um, that you love us and that we know this and that even through creation, you tell us so, Lord. Lord, would you be with us this morning uh, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Fuzz Rana, everybody. Yes, I'm a bastion of wisdom. <laughs> I've, I've got a PhD, as you can tell. <laughs> Thank you, Melanie, <laughs> for rescuing me. All right, so, but, all right, San Francisco. Uh, Amy and I love going to San Francisco. Uh, the last time we were there was uh, two years ago. It was in August, and we were celebrating our 35th uh, wedding anniversary, wow. right? So, yeah, we, we, we've been married 37 years, and I knew Amy four years before we got married, so we've known each other for 41 years. It's interesting, because when I tell people that Amy and I have been married for 37 years, they congratulate me and offer her condolences. <laughs> so anyway, but we were, we were in San Francisco to celebrate our, our wedding anniversary, and one of the things we did is we went to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. I've always wanted to go there, and we just never had a chance to do that. So that was our first trip there. And the reason I wanted to go there is because this is ground zero for the Summer of Love in 1967, right? That's what Haight-Ashbury was known for. It's also was kind of a hotbed for psychedelic rock in the late 60s. And in fact, in that neighborhood, you can visit the houses that the Grateful Dead used to live in, that Jerry Garcia, who fronted the Grateful Dead, lived in, Janis Joplin's house. You can visit the house that Jefferson Airplane was in, Jimi Hendrix. It's just, uh, for a music buff, it's kind of a cool place to go. But uh, in the late 1960s, Haight-Ashbury was actually a really bad neighborhood. It's been gentrified now, but it was a really bad neighborhood. And because of that, there were rooms that were readily available for low cost. Uh, houses were available for low cost. And because this was a hotbed for psychedelic rock, it began to become a place where people that were into the hippie movement and the counterculture movement began to congregate. And in 1967, in that summer... It all came to a head where estimates are somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 people converged in this neighborhood, right? And it, it was just this time of, of communal living, you know, free love, right? Uh, psychedelic drugs, free concerts in the park. It was just this, an attempt to create this utopian, idyllic world that was characterized by love and peace. 
right? But the summer came to an end and everybody began to leave and the people that were left behind, instead of having a utopia, what was left behind was a neighborhood that was even more run down because it couldn't handle 100,000 to 300,000 people in that neighborhood. And the aftermath was a neighborhood that was crime-ridden, where people were addicted to drugs, where people were homeless. And the point of this is that the summer of love was a false gospel, right? It promised utopia. It promised the world of peace and love. But what was delivered was not what was promised. And there's a lot of false gospels out there today, right? There's a lot of false gospels that offer you salvation. They offer you hope. They offer you a a chance at utopia, but all of these are going to disappoint. And so I think it's interesting that this summer as a church, we've been doing a series called the Summer of Love, right? And the, the theme, the organizing theme is that Jesus loves me, this I know. And so the point here is that we've been talking about how do we know that the gospel that we embrace as Christians is true, How can we be confident that we're not following a false gospel? And that's part of the point of this summer message. We know that Jesus loves us because the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us so, right? And that these books are historically accurate. They're scientifically reliable books that we can place confidence in their message, right? We know that Jesus loves us because our conscience tells us so, because our longings tell us so, because... The art that we express is, reflects God's love. And this is, these are all reasons to think that the gospel is true. As Melody told us a couple of weeks ago, we also know that Jesus loves us because God is at work in our lives, in our stories. These are all reasons why we can be confident in the gospel. And so today we're going to be talking about Jesus loves me this I know because creation tells me so right? Creation tells me so. And I was, I was chatting with Stephen um, before the, the message, and I said, yeah, there's going to be parts where it's going to be a little bit theologically uh, deep, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about physics. And he's like, physics at church? Yes. So, we're, so for those of you that were looking forward to coming to church because you wanted to get a good dose of physics this morning, you're going to get your, your wish. But the physics is incredible because it points to the reality of a creator and God's love for us. Okay, so the two things that I'm going to talk about this morning in terms of how does creation reveal God's love is first, the existence of creation itself. The fact that creation even exists. And the second thing I'm going to talk about is the design of creation. Creation's design. Okay, now, to understand how creation's existence communicates to us God's love for us, we need to take a step or two back and think about the nature of God. We need to think about God's nature. Now, as Christians, we are monotheists. That means we believe there's one God. And we believe that God is a personal God. God is not an impersonal force, but it's a personal God. We also understand that God is transcendent. That's a technical term that means God is independent of his creation, and he's outside of his creation. God spoke the creation into existence as a transcendent creator. We also understand that God is eternal, that he has always existed, right? Uh, And so God is a transcendent creator who is eternally existent, uh, who who is personal. Now, there's something that distinguishes Christian monotheism from Islam and from Judaism, and that is that we also understand that God is triune, right? That there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And this is a very difficult concept to grasp, the idea of the Trinity. In fact, I don't know that anybody has truly been able to explain what the Trinity actually is. And so, Here's my feeble attempt this morning, right? Because we understand that God is one in essence, but three separate persons. Or that God is one in essence, and there are three distinct centers of consciousness. 
So it's not that God is is, uh, revealing himself to us in three different modes. No, he's three separate persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. And you get the idea, right? All those those permutations. Now, um, so God is triune. Now, this is something that Scripture teaches us. We can't fathom how God could be triune, right? It's hard to make sense of that. But Scripture teaches us. It teaches us very clearly there is one God, and it also teaches us that there is God the Father, who Jesus would pray to. There is the second member of the Trinity, the Son, who took on the form of a human being. So Jesus is the the second member of the Trinity who's truly God and truly human. That's another mystery of the faith. And then the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person as well, right? And Scripture teaches us that, that Jesus is divine, that the Holy Spirit is divine. So the Trinity is an attempt to make sense of this. Now, one reason I believe Christianity is true and the message of the Bible is true is that if I was going to make up a religion, I would make up a God who it would be someone I could make sense of. The fact that Scripture presents to us God in a way that's very difficult for us to make sense, to me, is one of the reasons I think what Scripture is teaching us is true. Because if you're going to fabricate a religion, you're not going to fabricate a God that, that, that you can't make sense of, right? So now, this is where things become very important in terms of understanding how creation's existence reflects God's love. God is triune. Now, the greatest attribute of God, you could argue, is his love, right? Um, the, in the uh, letter that John wrote to the church, 1 John 4, 7, and 8, uh, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Right? God is love. Well, here's the, the kicker. Love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. This, to, to quote that great theologian John Mayer, Right? Love is a thing. Love is a verb. This is my attempt to show you that I'm cool and with it, right? <laughs> Making John Mayer references up here, you know. <laughs> anyway, but this is actually pretty profound because if love is a verb and God is love, that means that love is something that involves action. There has to be a subject that loves and an object that receives the love, or is that or which that love is directed towards, right? So if God is a God that is one God and one personality, then the question becomes, who does God love in eternity before he creates the the, the world that we live in? Before the creation, God is by himself, eternally existing. Who does he love if he's one God and one person? But if God is a trinity then the Father can love the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. There's a mutual community of love that's expressed within the Godhead. And as a result of that, God is perfect within himself. God is is complete. God doesn't need anything other than the relationships that exist within the Godhead. That makes God perfect and God complete. So God doesn't have to create anything Right? God doesn't have to create anything. If God is one in person and a singular God, he has to create if he's love. He has to create. He has no choice because there's got to be something that is the object of his love. So the point here is that the fact that creation even exists is evidence that God loves us. Right? Because God chose on his own volition to create the, the world that we live in, both the seen and the unseen world. He chose to do that. It's, again, a free will act on the part of God. It's his choice. And he created the world because he loves the world. This is something that is the object of his love. Now, as human beings, we are 
part of the creation, right? We are creatures. And Scripture teaches us, Genesis 1, it's also, this idea is echoed in Genesis 2, that we are made uniquely in God's image as human beings, right? We are image bearers. This idea is radical because it means that every human being images God. Every human being images God. And so that means that the way I treat another person is the way I'm treating God himself. So if I insult another human being, if I harm another human being, it's as if I am insulting and harming God because I'm insulting and harming an image bearer. That's why the image of God is the basic basis for Christian ethics. Every human being has infinite worth and value because every human being bears God's image. Now, there's more to being an image bearer than just having infinite worth and value, which is in and of itself amazing. Because we bear God's image, and we alone, among all that God has made, including the angels, we alone bear God's image, which means that God made us for something special. We're the crown of creation, according to Scripture. He made us as image bearers to be in a relationship with him. This is what's radical. God made us so that we, as human beings in his image, could enter into that community of love that exists in the Godhead. That is mind-blowing, right? That God made us so that we could be in a relationship with him, that we are invited into that love relationship. And so the fact that the universe exists, the fact that we exist as human beings in his image is a testament from creation that God loves us. It's a, it's a testament that God loves us, right? You guys tra- tracking with that? Okay, now let's move on to this idea of creation's design. This is where the physics is going to come into play. So uh, everybody get out your Texas instrument calculators. That, 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 that dates me, uh, or your slide rules. Uh, but, oh, actually, um, there is a quote that I want to, uh, I forgot ahead of myself. There's a quote here from Gerald Bray. This kind of puts a cap on what I made, the point I just made. Gerald Bray is a theologian, and, and this is what he writes. Um, he's referring to uh, uh, the theologian Augustine, He says, God cannot be love unless there is something for him to love. But if that something were not part of himself, he would not be perfect. The Bible does not teach us that God needed the creation in order to have something to love, because if that were true, he could not be fully himself without it. So Augustine reasoned that God must be love inside himself. We'll just go ahead and stop there. Okay, so now let's talk about the design of creation. Now, one of the things that goes along with being an image bearer is that we have this unique capacity as human beings to investigate the world that we live in. We can study the world that we live in, and we can learn things about the world that we can then apply. Uh, and we, we, we're commanded to do this, actually, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because this is the way in which We're going to unleash God's care for us, God's providence for us. And this is the basis for science and technology, right? Science discovers things about the world, and then we apply that to develop technology, and all of that leads to human flourishing, to human progress, right? And so uh, we have that capacity as image bearers to study the world. And over the last 200 years or so, scientists have characterized the universe What is it that makes up the universe? And have discovered that there are all these subatomic particles that make up the matter of the universe and the energy of the universe. The matter and energy are all based on these subatomic particles. And I'm not going to get into the details. Uh, And we also have discovered that there are forces that mediate the interactions between these particles. And those four forces are gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and the weak nuclear force. And then we also have discovered that there are three dimensions of space and a single dimension of time that defines the universe. 
So we have a good understanding, at least in part, as to what makes up the universe. Still some big questions, but we have a good understanding. Well, as we've characterized the basic makeup of the universe, we've discovered that the particles have mass, they have charge, and those are numerical values that de describe and define those particles. That the forces have force constants. These are numerical values that define the forces, right? That there are other equations that we've developed to describe the way the universe exists, and that these equations have constants in them. For example, one of the most well-known equations is E equals mc squared, right? Everybody has heard that, that equation. It's technically change in energy, or delta E equals delta mc squared. Well, c in that equation is the speed of light, and that is a constant. And the speed of light as a constant shows up in all kinds of equations, but it's a constant value. So the point is, is that we can actually describe the universe with a set of constants. These are called the constants of physics. And there's about a couple of dozen of these constants that, that people have described. And knowing these constants, we can understand or characterize the universe. It's pretty amazing. Turns out that astrophysicists and physicists have discovered that the values of these constants have to be exactly what they are currently for life to exist in the universe. If any one of these dozens of constants varied ever so slightly from their current value, life simply couldn't exist in the universe. This is called the anthropic principle. Anthropos is the Greek word for humanity. It's the humanity principle. That the universe seems to be designed and designed for a purpose where that purpose appears to be the, the, the coming of humanity, the appearance of humanity. Uh, that, that there is, again, there, this design in the constants of physics uh, suggests uh, design and purpose to the universe. One of the most extreme examples of this fine-tuning is something called the cosmological constant. Uh, this is a, a, a constant that Einstein introduced into his equations that described the expansion dynamics of the universe. So he, he puts in this constant, and it turns out that this constant has to be fine-tuned on the order of one part in 10 to the 120th power for life to exist. If that number varies by the 120th position after the decimal point, life can't exist in the universe. Now, just to give you a sense for how extreme this is, let's think about this in terms of money. Let's say that I owe Peter $10, and, and I only have nine bucks in my pocket, so I give Peter nine bucks. Peter's probably going to go, still owe me a dollar, right? That one dollar difference out of 10 is one part in 10 to the first power. Now, let's say I owe Peter $1,000, and I only have $999 on me, and so I give that to Peter well, that's still a dollar short, but do you think Peter's really going to care, even as, as frugal as he might be? Pro <laughs> probably not, right? Because, you know, $999 and $1,000 is about the same. That's one, that $1 difference is one part in 10 to the third. Now, let's say I owe Peter a trillion dollars, and I only have $999,999,999,999 dollars, and I give, him, give that to Peter, do you think he's even going to care that I'm, I'm shorting him a dollar? That's one part in 10 to the 12th. We're talking about one part in 10 to the 120th power. That's the degree of, of precision that has to exist for the constants of physics for life to exist in the universe. Uh, Sir Fred Hoyle, who died a number of years ago, was one of the first scientists to discover evidence for the fine-tuning in the universe. And this is what he said in response to that discovery. He said, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. Even somebody who, was, who ridiculed Christians, he was known 
as somebody who would ridicule the Christians and was extremely negative towards the Christian faith recognizes the theological implications of that fine-tuning. Okay, let's move on. There's another aspect of the creation that also, again, involves things being just right. And this has to do with the, the earth itself. Now, it wasn't that long ago, and this was largely due to the, the influence of Carl Sagan, it wasn't that long ago where people thought, look, the earth is just this average planet orbiting an average star, part of an average solar system in an average galaxy, one of billions and billions and billions of planets that could support life. Nothing special about the earth whatsoever. That idea has been long abandoned. And now astronomers and planetary scientists recognize that the earth is actually extremely unusual. It might even be unique in its capacity to support life. There's, it, it very well could be there's no other planet in the universe like the earth that could support life. Because it turns out that there are all these just right features of our galaxy, our sun, our solar system, the earth, the moon, the planetary companions that are in our solar system that have to be just right for life to be possible. There's hundreds of these parameters. And if ever even one of them differs from what its current value is, life can't exist on, on earth. There would be no life support planet. So, for example, we have to be in orbiting a star that is part of a spiral galaxy. There are elliptical galaxies, there are irregular galaxies, there also are spiral galaxies. Spiral galaxies are actually rare. So we're part of a, the Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. So you have to be in a spiral galaxy. You have to be, uh, the sun or the star that we orbit has to be in between the spiral arms and it has to be at a, spe a special distance from the center of the galaxy called the co-rotational distance. If not, there's no chance that life could exist on a planet orbiting that star. Uh, the sun has to have a just right mass, just a just right chemical composition in order for it to support life. Our planet Earth has to have a just right mass. It has to be a just right distance from the sun. If the, our distance from the sun deviated by 1% to 2%, life couldn't exist on the universe. We have to have a rotation rate that's 24 hours. If it was a little bit faster or a little bit slower, life couldn't exist on the Earth. You have to have a just right moon. Uh, we also have to be in a solar system where the orbits are circular. This is extremely rare. We've discovered thousands of extrasolar planets and none of them are in a solar system with circular orbits. All of them are elliptical orbits. Uh, you have to have just right gas giants in the outer portions of the solar system in order for life to exist on planet Earth. Sometimes this is called the Goldilocks hypothesis because everything has to be just right for, for life to exist. But the point is, is that not only does the universe appear to be designed for a purpose, and that purpose seems to be, have something to do with the arrival of human beings, so too does the, the earth that we live in. It looks like it's been carefully fabricated so that, it, that life could exist on planet earth. This is called the rare earth hypothesis. This is what um, Peter Ward and Donald Brownlee said. These, these two uh, scientists wrote a book a few years ago now called The Rare Earth Hypothesis where they introduced uh, with scientific rigor this idea of the rare earth. And this is what they write. A review of habitable zones. A habitable zone is just a term that means a region in space where life is possible. And they said a review of habitable zones for animals as well as microbes in our, the galaxy and the universe, as well as around our sun, leads to an inescapable conclusion. Earth is a rare place indeed. If some godlike being could be given the opportunity to plan a sequence of events with the express purpose of duplicating our Garden of Eden, that power would face a formidable task. It is unlikely that Earth could ever be truly duplicated. And so what we're looking at here is the universe and the earth appears to be designed and designed for a purpose, and that purpose somehow involves us as human beings. Uh, Freeman Dyson, uh, a physicist, uh, said this. I, I, 
I don't have that quote in front. There we go. Uh, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. Now, we could stop here and just say, look, the fact that there is design and that purpose for that design seems to be the arrival of human beings who bear God's image, that is a testament that human beings are incredibly valued by God, that we, we do indeed, are indeed the object of God's love. But there's a little bit more, if you just bear with me for just a few more minutes. And, and this has to do with a response to a common objection that I hear to this design argument. And the, and the, the objection goes like this. If human beings are made in God's image and the whole purpose of the universe and earth is to create a place for human beings to live as God's image bearers, then why on earth would God wait so long to create human beings? Right now, I am an old earth creationist. I take the view that the scientific dates for the universe and the earth and life on earth are credible dates. And I view day in Genesis 1 as a long period of time, just as for disclosure, I'm not asking you to, to necessarily agree or disagree with me. I'm just letting you know my perspective. But when we ask this question, well, why would God wait so long? This is actually not a bad objection, right? Because the universe is 14 billion years old, which means that the universe was around for 14 billion years before God created the very first human beings in his image. The earth is four and a half billion years old, so God waited four and a half billion years before he created human beings in his image. Why would God wait so long if we're the crown of creation, right? Well, the answer to this comes from science because we know that for the first 10 billion years of the universe's history, life simply wouldn't be possible. Why? Because there weren't the chemical elements that you would need to build a planet like the earth that could support life. Right? The chemical elements that are necessary for life are formed inside stars when they burn. Right? The, 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 there's a nuclear furnace in the core of stars, and that burning of that nuclear fuel convert, generates, through nucleosynthesis, chemical elements. Then, and then when that star consumes all of its fuel, it typically will supernova and spew all that debris into space that then forms these molecular clouds that condense to form the next star. And that process has to go on several times before you build up the inventory of chemical elements you would need for life to be possible. So for 10 billion years, there's no way that life could exist. Now, the Earth forms 4.5 billion years ago. Well, for the first 500 million years of Earth's history, nothing can live on Earth. It is an incredibly inhospitable environment. The earliest that life could appear on Earth is about 4 billion years ago, and lo and behold, life appears on Earth as soon as the Earth can support life. But it's, these are microorganisms. And for 3.5 billion years, there's nothing but single-celled organisms on the Earth. It's not until we get about 500 million years ago that advanced animals could actually exist. And as soon as the conditions of the earth are suitable for that, these animals appear. Boom, out of nowhere. It's a, an event called the Cambrian Explosion. It's quite remarkable. Uh, reminds me of the fifth day of creation. Uh, but even then, the earth would not be a place for humans to flourish. Humans might have been able to live, but we couldn't flourish. It was going to take another 500 million years before we would have a planet where not only could humans exist, but we could flourish, we would have the technology. Why is that? Because all of the natural resources that we have that allow for advanced civilization are biodeposits. They reflect the, the activity of organisms over the last four billion years. The microorganisms that were on Earth for the first three and a half billion years were transforming the planet so that there would be oxygen and other materials needed for advanced animal life. And the life that exists on Earth for the next 500 million years is responsible for the oil, the natural gas, the, the, uh, the microorganisms over 4 billion years are responsible for the metal deposits that we have 
we wouldn't be able to live and have civilization as human beings until this particular point in time when we exist. So God was patient and very carefully was transforming the universe and the earth to create a place where human beings could exist. And if you look at the Genesis 1 account, what you see is day after day, God is transforming the earth and introducing life where the ultimate objective is the creation of human beings in his image. So this is, in a sense, what's implied when we look at the Genesis 1 account. But now here's something else that's interesting, and I know that I'm way over time, so I'm going to go quickly now. The time window in which we can exist as human beings and flourish is a very short window of time. So even though God spent 14 billion years getting everything ready for us to live as human beings and flourish as his image bearers, that window of time in which we can exist is going to close quickly. And it turns out that there is a number of these windows that line up perfectly to allow us to have an, a place where, life could, where human life could flourish. So, for example, we are at an unusual time in our sun's history where the, so, the flaring activity is at a minimum. And if a solar flare goes off and it's strong enough, elect, all these satellite communications go down, the electrical grids go down, Right? We also are at a time where we're in an unusual window where there's climactic stability. Prior to about 100,000 years ago, climate was all over the place, and soon the climate's going to be all over the place. That's another window of time where, we, where uh, our duration on Earth is going to be limited, at least in terms of human civilization. So we don't have long. But now think about this. What we're basically saying is that human beings are the crown of, his, of, our, of God's creation, we're image bearers made to be in a relationship with him that God spent 14 billion years to get everything just right so that we could flourish as human beings and that window of time is going to close before we know it. That doesn't seem like a great design, does it? Well, think about this in terms of a wedding. How many of you have planned a wedding or prepared for a wedding, right? A lot of you have, right? And you know... I, you could probably even already know where I'm going with this, right? What a headache, right? I mean, when, I, when our daughters got married, I'm thinking, this is, this is miserable. There's absolutely nothing fun about this. It takes all kinds of work. It costs all kinds of money. It takes all kinds of time to prepare, right? And we, but we do this, and we do this willingly. Everybody does. Why? Why? Because even though the wedding is going to last about an hour and a half, and there might be a little bit of a, a party, we're willing to do it because the two people that are getting married are incredibly important and valuable to us. And this is an incredibly significant event in their life. And so all that work, all that preparation, all that effort, all that time is worth it because of the significance of the event. So the fact that God would take all that time and all that effort to make a place where we could exist for a short period of time as his image bearers makes perfect sense, right? It, it tells us that God must love us and that our, we must be incredibly significant. And again, we are significant because we bear God's image and we have been invited into a relationship with God that exists in that love community that is the Trinity. Now, of course, we know that something went horribly wrong, right? That, that human beings rebelled against God, and as a result, we are in sin. That we are sinners. That we, because of our sin nature and because of our acts of sin, we are alienated from God. But yet, God loved us so much that the second member of the Trinity came to rescue us. He took on the form of a human being to come and rescue us. And part of that rescue meant willingly going to the cross to give himself up for us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could now have, be able to respond to that invitation to join that love relationship that exists in the Trinity. If you think it took a lot in terms of effort and cost and resources to create a place for human beings to live. Think about what it cost for God to take on the form of a human being 
and give himself up so that we could be reconciled to him. That, that cost far, far, far is, exceeds anything that God did with respect to the creation. And I'm going to go ahead and, and close uh, with this idea that our hope as Christians is ultimately in the idea that we will one day enter into that relationship with, with God fully, that we will fully enter into that love relationship with God. And this is the picture that the Apostle John paints for us as to what's going to happen when that time comes from the book of Revelation. Uh, this is what he says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready, and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And then the angel said, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. It's interesting that the imagery of a wedding is used to describe the consummation of the invitation for us to enter into that love relationship. Where we as members of the church who are redeemed by God are called the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom and there's going to be this marriage supper of the Lamb in which we celebrate, in which we celebrate the ultimate vision that God had for, for, his, for us as human beings in his image is to be in that relationship. And now we're, we're going to move to a, a time of communion. And communion is a, a time where we remember the cost that Christ paid for us on the cross. Uh, we, we take from, we eat the bread, we drink, from, we drink the juice, uh, which symbolize the broken body of Christ and the spilt blood of Christ that was necessary for us to be reconciled to the Godhead. And so whenever we take from the, the cup and we eat the bread, we are proclaiming the death of Christ and we're proclaiming the gospel. But today, as we come together for communion, what I also want us to think about is that this communion table very well may be a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going to do communion today where each of you can take communion on your own. We're going to invite you to come forward. We'll serve you the elements, and then it's up to you to go back on your own and take communion. And I would ask for everyone, because we're going to be taking communion individually, though as a community, but as individual people, that you please um, be respectful of the fact that people are contemplating um, their relationship with Christ. So please, please come forward.